So last time we looked as we traveled with Joshua in chapter 7 and we studied the, the sobering account of the fall of the nation and particularly of Achan and how they were defeated at Ai, a city that was smaller, which they thought would be an easy pickings, and yet they were defeated and they were um, humiliated and it was a costly and painful loss for the nation. And we looked at what was at the heart of it, and at the heart of it was the, the sin of Achan, and how he was tempted when he saw the spoils, and he kept them, and he hid them in his tent. And we also looked how easily it is, Hebrews said, how easily we fall into sin, and that besets us as well. And uh, we are more like Achan than we think we are. And the seriousness of it came to light, and the wages it brings. We also saw in that solemn procession where Achan was led out of the camp with his family and was stoned to death and burned. Well, you can imagine coming, walking home from that event, what the Israelites thought. They walked back very sober. They just had seen someone die in front of them, someone they knew, and they had lost a battle. Had God's mercy been finished, was there no more hope for them? Well, earlier in the life of John Calvin, he was a, a Roman Catholic at the time, and he also saw a certain judgment that made a great effect on him. One day he was walking home from his studies in Paris, and it was late one night, and all of a sudden a fellow, older fellow, grabbed him by the scuff of the neck and kind of threw him around a bit, and he said, young man, have you heard about the free gift of God? Well, John Calvin, he was a little wimpy. He was a little skinny little thing. He was sort of taken back by the whole thing and uh, got up again. And the old guy had scoured off again. And uh, he kind of had forgotten about it till about a week later. He was walking again on the street and he saw a crowd gathering. And you know, when a crowd gathers, more and more people add to the group, and he, um, he uh, saw that there was going to be a public execution on the stake. The Roman Catholic Church did that quite a bit. It was an execution for heresy. Well, soon enough, he realizes it was the, the fellow that he had spoken with just a week before, the old, the old man. And Calvin stood there, and he watched for a while. And he was impressed with the calmness and the relaxed state of the old man. There was no pleading for his life. There was no tears. There was no begging for mercy. But he stood there in a very calm repose. And then when the fire was lit, the old man with a strong voice started to sing, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Well, the flames went around this old man and eventually silenced his voice and it deeply affected Calvin as you can imagine. Well, it was not his conversion story, but it was something that the Lord used um, to bring him to himself. So the people of Israel too would have been deeply affected by this event. So with that little bit of background, let us go to uh, Joshua uh, 9 or eight, and we'll read that whole uh, chapter. 
chapter 8, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee, and rise up and go to Ai. See, I have given it unto thine hands, the king of Ai, and his people, and his city, and his land. And thou shalt do to Ai and her king, as thou didst unto Jericho and her king. Only the spoil thereof, and the cattle thereof, ye shall take for a prey unto yourself. Lay thee an ambush for the city behind it. So Joshua arose, and all the people of war, to go up against Ai. And Joshua chose out 30,000 men of valor, mighty men of valor, and sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, ye shall lie in wait against the city, even behind the city. Go not very far from the city, but ye already. And I and all the people that are with me will approach unto the city. And it shall come to pass, when they come against us, as at first, they will flee that we will flee before them, for they will come after us, till we have drawn them from the city, for they will say, they flee before us as at the first. Therefore we will flee before them. Then you shall arise up from the ambush and seize upon the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it shall be, when ye have taken the city, that ye shall set the city on fire, According to the commandment of the Lord, shall ye do. See, I have commanded you. Joshua therefore stood, therefore sent them forth, and then they went to lie in ambush and abode between Bethel and Ai, on the west side of Ai. <coughs> but Joshua lodged that night among the people, and Joshua rose up early in the morning, and numbered the people, and went up he and the elders of Israel before the people of Ai. And all the people, even the people of war that were with him, went up and drew nigh and came before the city and pitched on the north side of Ai. Now there was a valley between them and Ai. And he took about 5,000 men and set them to lie in ambush between Bethel and Ai <clears throat> on the west side of the city. And when they had set the people even all the host that was on the north side of the city, their liars in wait on the west side of the city. Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley. And it came to pass, when the king of Ai saw it, that they hasted and rose up early, and the men of the city went out against Israel to battle, he and all his people, at a time appointed before the plain. But he was not that there were leers in the ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them, and they fled by the way of the wilderness. And all the people that were in Ai were called together to pursue after them, and they pursued after Joshua and were drawn away from the city. And there was not a man left in Ai or Bethel and they, that went not out after Israel. And they left the city open, pursued after Israel. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in thine hand towards Ai, for I will give it into thine hand. And Joshua stretched out the spear that he had in his hand towards the city. And the ambush arose quickly out of their place. And they ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand. 
and they entered into the city and took it and hasted and set the city on fire. And when the men of Ai looked behind them, they saw, and behold, the smoke of the city ascended up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that way. And the people fled into the wilderness, turned back upon the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw the ambush had taken the city, that the smoke of the city ascended, then they turned again and slew the men of Ai. And the other issued and the other issued out of the city against them, so were in, they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and they smote them, so that they let none of them remain or escape. And the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. And it came to pass, when Israel had made an end of the slayings of all the inhabitants of Ai in the field, in the wilderness wherein they chased them, and when they were all fallen on the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all the Israelites returned unto Ai, smote it with the edge of the sword. And so it was that all that fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, even all the men of Ai. For Joshua drew not his hand back wherein he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the cattle and the spoil of that city of Israel he took unto themselves, according to the word of the Lord, which he commanded Joshua. And Joshua burned Ai and made it an heap forever, even a desolation unto this day. And the king of Ai, he hung on a tree until eventide. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take his carcass down from the tree and cast it at the entering of the gate of the city and raised thereon a great heap of stones that remained unto this day. Then Joshua built an altar unto the Lord, the God of Israel in Mount Ebal. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man had lift up any iron, and they offered their own burnt offerings unto the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And he wrote there upon stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he wrote in the presence of the children of Israel. And all Israel and their elders and officers and their judges stood on this side of the ark and on the other side before the priests, the Levites, <coughs> which bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord, as well the stranger as he that was born amongst them, half of them over against Mount Gerizim and half over against Mount Ebal. And Moses, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded them before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterwards, they read all the words of the law, the blessings and cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded which Joshua read not before the congregation of Israel, with the women and the little ones and the strangers that were conversant among them. Anyway, it's a long, a long piece, <laughs> but um, hopefully we gain good information from it. So this morning I would like to uh, talk about the three points. It's a bit of a bird's eye view of this chapter this time. And uh, the first one is the encouragement and guidance of the Lord. 
the defeat of AI and the covenant renewal. So the first point is the, the encouragement and the guidance from the Lord. So the anger of the Lord has been put away from the nation. The guilty party has been purged. And of course, it was Achan and his family, as we've seen, he was publicly executed. And Achan had admitted himself that he has done this. And there may even be that his confession was uh, true and, and heartfelt, <clears throat> as we looked at last time. He had seen the goods, he took them, and he hid them. And uh, God, of course, did not all the time deal this severely with the people, where one person sinned, a whole uh, thing like this would happen. But it was set at the beginning of a new era to set the tone, as it were, as he did with Ananias and Sapphira, the New Testament, to set the tone about his holiness and the seriousness of following him. And even though Achan was the main culprit, we did see that there was a lack of leadership in Joshua. He did listen to the spies that suggested just to send out a few. We didn't see a lot of prayer, um, and uh, we don't see a lot of directing from the Lord in that chapter, except with the judgment that came. So, because um, um, Joshua, of course, had listened to those spies that were very self-confident, and um, that's the danger we can have once we have some successes. And even though God had commanded the whole nation to be involved in the capturing of the land, um, they didn't. So no doubt it left Joshua with a little bit of reflection as well. Deep concern for the nation, worry, perhaps, what would be next. But in this chapter, we see a big U-turn for the nation, a big turnaround from the previous one. God, once again, was the real captain of the army, guiding them in every detail that was about to happen in this second attack. Notice that it is God that comes down to Joshua and reminds him again not to fear or to be dismayed. And he had received those promises earlier, not to fear, not to be dismayed. It's the Lord God that gives the encouragement right there when he needs it most. He may have thought, well, will we ever defeat AI? How, as a leader, um, can I lead these people? Will there be another Achan in our midst? <clears throat> and you could see that he would have been very discouraged himself. Perhaps he was like David, perhaps like you sometimes when you are in the down, in the dips. And David in Psalm 77 says, Will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean, gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath the Lord forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? I think if we're believers, we have all gone through periods like that, maybe as we are exposed to our own sin. Maybe you feel that right now this morning, especially on the Lord's Day where we have the, the Lord's Supper. You might feel some, some gloom or some anxiousness, or hopelessness perhaps, when you think of your past failures. The best of saints can succumb to that type of gloom or fear or unbelief. And if you look at the, the lives of the saints in the Old Testament, you see that they had moments of great faith 
as though there would never be a moment of depression or fear, and then there was great moments of unbelief. But then the Lord comes, and he picks them up again and reminds them, and he renews them, and he reinvigorates them with fresh blessings and reminders of his word. Every believer at best, his life is a patch of great moments of triumph, but also patches of disaster, as it were. Yet we may and we must not wallow in our despondency or in our sorrow for our sins, but we must, as we see here with Joshua, get up and start working for the Lord again and trusting in his promises again and be guided by his word once again. The Lord, or David, prays in that great Psalm 103. He talks about the forgiveness of his iniquities, the slowness of God's anger, the greatness of his mercy, plenteous in mercy. And as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our sins from us. He knows our frames, and he remembers that we are but dust. The Lord is more eager to forgive than we are to go to him. Think of the picture of the, the father in the prodigal son when the father is looking out, and at the first glance, he sees the son, and he runs to him to welcome him. So the Lord comes to Joshua with words of cheer. As he sought out our first parents in the garden after they sinned, as he sought out Peter when he had denied the Lord three times, as he sought out David through Nathan the prophet, the Lord comes, sometimes confronting, he confronted David with his sin, but yet with words of cheer and forgiveness. God is always the initiator of great encouragement, and he knows just the time when we need him and does not want to leave us unnecessarily in our misery longer than necessary. Sometimes are reluctant, we sometimes are reluctant to forgive or to forget when it comes to someone else's sin, not, not our own, of course. But, um, but Paul says to the church when they had to deal with a, a church discipline issue about a certain fellow, he said uh, to forgive him, comfort him, lest peradventure he is overcome with too much sorrow, <clears throat> over much sorrow. After repentance, there is time for healing and forgiveness. When we sin as Christians, we feel the guilt. We understand who that we have sinned against. And that is good. God uses that. God uses your conscience to once again draw us to himself. And he lets us see once again the need for cleansing, for forgiveness, for the confession of our sins. First John 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Past failures are not held against us. They are stones that we can use to step on to success. Satan, the accuser, will, of course, shoot his arrows at us. He will remind us of, of sins that have been long been confessed and forgiven to cast us down, to keep us living in despair and gloom and doom. 
think of the great ministry that Jonah had. And yet after his foolishness of walking away from God, trying to flee from God no less, he was cast down for the season, yet God once again restores his ministry and a wicked city like Nineveh gets converted. Think of the great apostle Peter, also restored, and afterwards he was a great blessing to the church, and we read his word every day. We, uh, let us not be wary in well-doing, for in due time we will reap. So here the Lord once again reminds Joshua not to be fearful, not to be alarmed. What I've promised from the beginning, what I've started with you in the beginning, I will bring it to pass. You already have the blessing, Joshua. He's saying you already have this city. Now seek out and get it. It's a great picture, I think, of, of every Christian. We are weak and fragile. We're tempted and at times overcome. But what God has started in our own life, he will finish it. None of his sheep will forever be lost. His blood-bought sheep he will take to heaven with him. Even though maybe for a season we are clouded from that sight. But now there's still work to be done. We don't dwell on past defeat. There's no reason to wallow in it. There is work to be done here for Joshua. Notice that God is fully involved in the instructions in how this was to be done. First of all, we see that all the people of war were to be involved, endeavor not just for a few, as the spies had suggested earlier in chapter 7. The whole nation, as they were commanded to much earlier, had to be involved in it. And we also see the clear and decisive promise given again to Joshua. I have, past tense, given you the king of Ai, the land and the city. And how often had Joshua heard this promise about the land and that he would get it? But how often we do get downcast, how often we do forget, even we have the complete Bible, we even have way more than Joshua ever had, how easily we forget, how easily our faith gets clouded over, or we just neglect to read his word and be encouraged thereby. We replace it with the world's promises, perhaps, the world's goods, or we're distracted. Notice also the great difference between the instruction about the spoil. <clears throat> In verse 2 there, the king and the people will be destroyed, but the spoil and the cattle you can take for yourself. Achan's horrible death and defeat, and the defeat of Ai, for the first time was because he took that spoil. He stole it. He had hidden it, kept it for himself. It really makes you want to say, ah, oh, man, if he would have just waited, waited a little bit longer, be a little bit more patient. He could have grabbed all those Babylonian coats that he treasured so much. He could have gone to the local Hudson Bay and grabbed 10 of them. He could have grabbed all the silver that he wanted after the battle. And now a good application here to wait for the blessings of the Lord and not make haste. Failing to wait or listening to godly counsel 
doing our own thing can cost us dearly and sometimes many years of grief. Yes, we can confess it. We, when we confess it, we are forgiven it. But the consequences can be with us for a long time. And the consequences for Achan were, of course, deadly. So in verses 3 to 13, the battle plans are laid out for Joshua. Work had to be done. God's promises were given to him, and the encouragement there was there for a sure victory, but still the work needs to be done. The Apostle Paul was assured of the ultimate victory of the church, yet he says, Wherefore I also labor, striving according to his working, with work it in me mightily. Ah, he worked hard. He knew that it was the Lord that was in him and through him working, but he still labored almost till death. In the Christian life, we work and we toil, we struggle, yet all that ability comes from God himself. Kent Hughes is right in his commentary. God's sovereignty and our responsibilities are not polar opposites between we oscillate, but different sides of the same spiritual reality. So this battle involves a ploy, a tactic, a ruse to deceive the king of Ai and to trick him out of the city with his army. <clears throat> so that another part of Joshua's army will enter into the city and destroy it. As you have seen in the book of Joshua before, that the, the writer likes to unpack a little bit more detail as the story unfolds. So sometimes it may read a little bit confusing as he goes back and gives us more information. In verse three, 2, he speaks about the ambush, and later, in the later verses, he adds more and more detail about the account. The plan involves the use of 30,000 armed men skilled in warfare. Some are sent overnight into a hiding place behind the city. Verse 9 says it is west of Ai, ready to engage in the fight. Now, the fact that this large group was not noticed earlier by the king, but just at the right time, is already a clear indication that the hand of the Lord and his protection is upon the nation. He can close eyes and ears to protect us. And how revealing it will be one day when we see that ourselves in our own lives, how the Lord has protected us from things we had no idea about Sometimes you see a little kid heading with a knife or an electrical uh, thing, and uh, you take him away, but they had no idea the danger they were in. How many times has the Lord shielded us from dangers like that, from sin or other things? The other group is going to attack the city from the front, or uh, at least they, they will pretend they are. And uh, the king of Ai will think, well, this is going to be easy. We got them last time, and he will and his army will go after them. Israel will pretend to be alarmed, scared, and flee from them as soon as they see him. Boasting, the boasting confidence uh, of Ai's army will be rattled again and go after them, the Israelites. <clears throat> At that time, when they are far enough out of the city, Another group will come in and in a shock and awe campaign destroy the city by fire. 
you notice, you notice in verse 7, as a good leader, Joshua tells them that the Lord will give them the city into their hands. He, they, he remembers they need to be encouraged. It's only a day or so away from that great defeat from a, a, a day be, before where uh, 30 or so were lost. So they, he knows this, these people need to be uh, encouraged. But Joshua is full of confidence. The Lord had promised, and so he spreads those promises to the people. Notice, too, that little sentence in the end of verse 9, that he slept among the people, a picture of a good shepherd staying with his people, ready to encourage them in case they need to. What a great picture of the Lord Jesus Joshua is, of Emmanuel with us, how he comes amongst the people. And he promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. <clears throat> Second part, defeat of Ai. Well, he awoke early. He went up with the army and the elders and the representative. And when the king of Ai sees it, he gathers up his army and he must figure, well, we'll finish the job this time. But it says at the end of verse 14, he was not that there was leers or an ambush against him behind the city. He was unaware of the trap, of the ambush, of the ploy that was set up against him. This was not the cleverness of Joshua, but by the God of heaven and earth. And is that not a little picture of the real danger that anyone is in outside the Savior, young or old, maybe even here this morning? You're confident, you trust in yourself, you're living apart from God. You may look to yourself and be quite pleased with yourself. I'm a pretty good fellow. And just like the king of Ai. You know, the king of Ai could say, you know, the mighty Pharaoh couldn't beat Israel, but I did. Jericho couldn't beat Israel, but I did. We Aiites are a pretty good bunch. We send them running with their tails between their legs. How dangerous it is to live in self-confidence apart from God. Because like Achan, before, this would be his last day. And in a few short hours, his state would be much different. How dreadful it is when we are unconverted, unforgiven in this world, and how soon our end can come. Sudden destruction can come. Like the rich man in Luke 12, who wanted to build bigger barns, and from there on end he would live with ease, and he figured he would live for many more days. But that night, his life would end. His hours were numbered. <clears throat> The extreme danger you are in if you are outside the Savior. Outside the Savior's work, outside his blood. And ponder that this morning, if that is your case. Make your calling and election sure and examine yourself. And just like as God had spoken, the king came out of the city. Even the people of another town, Bethel, joined him. And Israel pretended to flee, which may have been a bit humbling for some of these soldiers, you know, tough guys pretending to 
be weaklings, but nevertheless they obeyed. And so the king and all his army was trapped, sandwiched between these two groups. And I will not deal with all the particulars of that case here, but we see it laid out, and we see that the Lord directs Joshua to lift up his spear, kind of a repeat of what Moses did when he was fighting the Amalekites, and the city is set on fire, and the smoke of judgment arises to the heaven, kind of like Sodom and Gomorrah, and the king saw it, and then it was too late. A great reversal had taken place for him from just a few days ago. It was now their lot to flee, but verse 20 says they had no power to flee this way or that way. And the city and the people were utterly destroyed, those in the fields and those in Ai itself. God in kindness gives the Israelites the spoil richly to enjoy. And God gives them as a, as a blessing to them. After that defeat, that moral defeat from the day before, now he, he blesses them with good things. And once again, we see another memorial here, another heap of stones. This is the fourth one. And uh, Ai would become a place of rubble, a place of desolation, a place of the goodness and of the severity of God, a place of, of failure and yet a place of, of success. <clears throat> Perhaps you can relate it in your own life where you had a place of great failure and sin and that place became a place of success after the Lord restores us and he heals us and he forgives us. The confident king of Ai is captured and hung from a tree till evening after he has been killed. The law of Moses commanded that nobody could hang on a tree overnight. So sometimes people say, well, this is barbaric here. Well, they showed a lot more dignity to the body than the pagan nations did. And think of what we do when it comes to abortions where bodies are desiccated and the innocent are murdered in our day and age. So here the tone is set, a warning for other kings in the area in case they still do not want to submit to Joshua and the God of Joshua. It's another picture, of course, of the seriousness of sin, its consequences, and the picture of the certain doom of sinners, and how the end will be for all the enemies of God, a picture of the curse of death and of the broken law. Deuteronomy states, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, he will be put to death, and thou shalt hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, and the land and that sorry, that thy land will not be defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for inheritance. And of course this reminds us once again of what in reality we all deserve, and what the Lord Jesus took upon himself for his people, hanging on that tree-shaped cross, representing, represented here in the, the elements this morning, his broken body and the shed blood, and how he became a curse for us. 
Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. What the king of Ai got, we, you and I, richly deserve. But Christ took that upon himself and was publicly humiliated and executed for us. So the king of Ai, the king of Ai like Achan, is buried under a heap of stones. And it was still there for a long time afterwards. Achan's burial site pictured and warned people not to disobey or trifle with the Lord or with the commandment of God. While the king of Ai's heap of stones would remind them that by obeying and believing the promises of God, victory will be had. The victory at Ai was different than the one in Jericho. The hand of the Lord was in them both, but there was less miraculous in Ai than it was in Jericho. And God works in different ways, and different, we're different people, and we see that more people are involved here, <clears throat> and they actually had to fight a little bit harder. Maybe this was their second best. Maybe if they would have inquired properly of the Lord, things would have gone differently yet. But God fulfills his plans in his way and in his time. And Joshua did not question God. He is not his counselor, but he obeyed him as the true captain of the army. Then, third point, we see the covenant renewal. Now, in these last verses of this chapter, we see that the writer all of a sudden takes us away from Ai to somewhere else. One writer says, one moment we are at the gates of Ai, where the king is getting his last rites, and the next we are 20 miles north of Ai, in the shadow of Mount Ebal, hearing the blessings and the curses of the law of Moses in a worship service. Note that this service of the reading of the law and the offerings is held in the region of Shechem, where Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim are. <clears throat> it is in that same area that Abraham, in Genesis 12, was promised the land. God appeared to him there. He had made an altar as well. He had called upon the Lord. And Jacob, after some period of exile, would also return there. Now, the Canaanites had a places of worship in this area, but the Lord is about to replace them with the proper and true worship. The valley between the two mountains formed kind of a natural amphitheater so that the sound would travel nicely and far away. And now we see, after all those years that Abraham was there, we see the 12 tribes gathered together in one place. All of Abraham's seed hearing the word of God, and he is fulfilling his promises. Ralph Davis writes, Surely our writer wants us to note the significance of the location. It is a way of recognizing the faithfulness of God, a way of saying that time does not invalidate God's promises. One might say, why now the reading of the law, the offerings, the renewal of the covenant? Would this not be bad timing? Would it not be better to wait for a more convenient time? Could the enemies, you're stuck in a valley, 
could the enemies of the, of the Israelites not join forces and, and attack them? Now that these two border towns are under control, would it not make sense to let's wipe out everything and be done with it and we can get our own piece of land and our houses and so on? But the Lord, especially after the defeat of Ai, wants to deal with what is most important, a heartfelt communion with God through his word and sacrifices and all that those stood for. Guilt, forgiveness, peace with God, and impressing upon them the full counsel of his law. Matthew Henry writes, <clears throat> we must not think to defer to defer our covenanting with God till we are settled in the world, or must any business put off by from mining and pursuing that one thing that is needful. The way to prosper is to begin with God. The Lord Jesus says to those that are concerned about food and money and clothing, he says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Even though much of the land is still to be conquered and the enemies are, are around, God gave them safety as they did this. And they rendered acceptable service unto him. This act was an act of obedience and an act of faith by the people of God. And faith considers first of all what God has said what we should do. Even if it sounds unreasonable or even irresponsible. They obeyed God and they trusted him for safety. In verse 31, we are reminded that Moses, back in Deuteronomy 27, verse 1 to 7, right before his death, had told them to do this, what we now see happening. He speaks about this event of the time of renewal, the writing of the law on stones, the place where it was to be held, the building of the altar, Stones were picked out and they were not allowed to be uh, chiseled or worked upon uh, or to make them nicer. And here we see Joshua once again obeying the law of Moses and leading his people into obedience. Now that law was not going to be shiny because said it couldn't be worked upon. It, it shouldn't look like one of the local Canaanite pagan altars. Another reason may be that People have a tendency to worship churches or altars, so the altar had to be plain. There was no worship to be directed towards the altar. On it, <clears throat> they would offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, speaking of the devotion and to the Lord and peace that the people enjoyed. First the burnt offering, then the peace offering. First the lamb without blemish, and it had to be followed by the peace offering, a sign of that fellowship that was now restored. Also, as Moses commanded, they were to plaster the stones and write a copy of the law on them in the presence of all the children of Israel. Perhaps just the Decalogue that we read this morning, maybe the whole law, probably not. There'll be a lot of stones. Uh, it's not being said. And the people now could read it for themselves. <clears throat> it was a place where they would go to. And it was a place they would be reminded of how to live in this land of promise. God says, this is my law, walk ye in it. 
Now in a great crescendo, the people stood on Mount Ebal and the other on Mount Gerizim, the ark of God, the signs of God's presence was right in the middle of them. And Moses in Deuteronomy 27 gives us more detail who was on what side of which mountain. But all were involved, and all were presents. Even the stranger that was born among them, Gentiles like Rahab and her family were there in the public reading of God's law, his word. And there was also a public response of the reading of the law. Now, we don't read this here, but if you could turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 27, we'll, we'll read some of those verses near the end to get a glimpse of how that would have gone and how that would have echoed around in those mountains in the valleys where they were. And we'll read from chapter um, 27, verse 14. So they're there on that mountain. And the Levites shall speak and say unto the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image, an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of craftsmen, and put it away in a secret place. And all the people shall say, Amen. And you could hear the loud Amen reverberating through the valley. Cursed is he that set at light or disobeys his parents, his father or mother. And all the people say, Amen. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that maketh the blind to wander out of the way. And all the people shall say, Amen. Verse 26. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. And all the people shall say, Amen. And so the law was read, and the people said, Amen to it. This is true, so be it, to the curses and to the blessings. Imagine the impact on that public reading of the law. And this was to be done according to the law of Moses every seven years. Whatever, if it's done again, I don't know. Israelites are not always obedient, as we know, but it was to be done every seven years. But imagine the impact on the people, the young and the old, Rahab, the Gentiles that started to add there as well. They heard of the word of God that day. True love for God always goes hand in hand with love for his word. And if we love his word, we will want to obey it. The Lord Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we still need God's law today in our own lives, in the life of our country? To show how to live, first of all, and to show the law also shows us that we need a Savior. To make us once again aware of his holiness and to say amen to the blessings of the law, but also to the curses of the broken law as the Israelites did. So that when they did fail and they would they would look to that altar that pointed to the Savior, the suffering Savior, the Lamb of God who was without blemish, who came and brought peace with God and men. When we have come to Christ, 
for that forgiveness, for that cleansing. He will write the law not on stones, but he will write it upon our hearts. As redeemed and adopted people, he will start that work of sanctification until the day we are passing on into glory. I'd like to end with one section from David Jackman. He says, being a Christian is not about playing spiritual games or having a spare time religious interest. It demands the whole of our being, since spiritual neutrality is impossible and cannot truly worship at the cross and then go living in disobedience. Because the two attitudes are mutually exclusive if we seek to live in obedience, although we often fail and fall, if our lives are characterized by repentance of faith, <clears throat> God is with us. He is committed to us and to those who trust in him. And his victories will be ours. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it gives us, all the comforts that it gives us. Father, we thank you that you are a merciful Father, Lord. And even though we sin time and time again, we have a merciful high priest. Father, we thank you for all that we see in the Lord's Supper here this morning. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his great name we pray. Amen.